Sir Andrew McMichael is a professor of immunology at the University of Oxford. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society and of the Academy of Medical Sciences. He's been a world leader in the field of immunology for decades, um, and some of his seminal contributions include showing that T-cells recognize viral infected cells in a HLA-restricted manner. He's also researched T-cell responses to influenza and HIV, um, and made two HIV vaccines that have entered phase one trials, and more recently discovered HLA-E peptide complexes as uh, ligands for NKG2 receptors on um, natural killer cells, so NK cells. I'm actually also very lucky in that I'm currently doing undergraduate research in his lab, where I focus on um, an atypical subset of CD8 T cells that recognize um, HLA-E. So although I don't usually give primers or textbook um, definitions, I think it would be useful for this episode, just a quick refresher about T-cells and MHC. So firstly, we often use MHC and HLA interchangeably. Um, HLA is the MHC of humans, whereas MHC is common to all vertebrates but have different names. So CD8 T-cells are also called cytotoxic T-cells. They have the ability to directly kill pathogen-infected or cancerous cells. And the way they specifically recognize them is by detecting complexes of MHC class 1 molecules, which here we can just consider as serving as cradles for peptides, and the peptides in question, which will be derived from larger proteins of the pathogens or proteins that are overexpressed and mutated in cancer. So what is recognized is specifically a complex of MHC class 1 and peptide rather than any of the elements alone, which actually has um, many important implications about the way the immune system operates, uh, which we won't go in all of them here. Now, since expression of the peptide MHC class 1 on the surface of a target cell essentially serves as a kill me tag for the CD8 T cells, there's been an evolutionary pressure for both pathogens and cancer cells to find ways to prevent this complex from being expressed. So viruses like HIV, SARS-CoV-2, and herpes viruses like um, cytomegalovirus, for example, as well as many human cancers, downregulate MHC class 1. So there needs to be a second surveillance mechanism such that the cells that have downregulated MHC class 1 don't evade the immune system. And the way this is done is by natural killer cells, which have the ability to detect the absence of MHC class 1 expression. And this interaction relies on HLA-E, which usually presents a highly conserved peptide, a self-peptide, that inhibits NK cells. But when MHC class 1 expression is lost, then HLA-E is destabilized on the surface, and instead of inhibition of NK cells, activation occurs which licenses them to kill the targets. So hopefully that's enough to understand all that follows, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. So yeah, maybe before we focus on some of your more research interests, it'd be interesting to have you present a bit of your scientific career, which now has spent 50 years in immunology, which is quite remarkable. Um, so can you talk about how you first of all, went into a research career, and then what were some of your interests at the very start? Yes. <laughs> um, well, it's amazing to me that I started 50 years ago, uh, this month, actually, or at least last month, in October. Um, so initially, I qualified in medicine 
at um, Cambridge and uh, St Mary's Medical School, now part of Imperial in London, and then did some junior doctor jobs, and uh, but was always interested in sort of doing some kind of medical research with a sort of clinical connection. And um, rather by accident, I, I met a professor of medicine who linked me up to a famous immunologist called Ita Askenas at uh, the National Institute of Medical Research in Mill Hill. And so I went there to do a PhD um, starting on October the 1st, uh, 1971, and um, uh, worked on B cells, trying to clone B cells. So this was very early days of immunology before um, monoclonal antibodies, before any DNA technology was accessible, uh, before most of the protein work, there was no flow cytometry, et cetera, et cetera. So people were kind of working with mice and um, there were some inbred strains that were interesting and still are interesting. Um, and there were techniques like sort of cell transfer, a lot of mostly in vivo, it wasn't a lot of in vitro work. And um, nevertheless, um, people just uh, describe these phenomena, um, all of which have molecular bases, which is now pretty well understood. So, so they include adjuvants, um, they include um, suppressor cells, they include um, uh, MHC restriction, a um, whole load of things like that. Um, and while I was there, um, this paper came out describing the association between HLA-B27 and ankylosing spondylitis. So I knew about the disease because I'd done some medicine. And um, I thought this was pretty amazing and it still is amazing. <laughs> we are actually sort of still working on that um, and haven't figured out the exact mechanism yet. Um, but that got me interested in, in T cells and the MHC. It was just beginning to be discovered by Zinconagel and Doherty that MHC proteins or HLA proteins in humans present peptides to T cells. Um, but it wasn't known that they were peptides at that time. All it was known was it was somehow involved in T cell responses. And so I went to Stanford University to do a sort of follow-up postdoc where I worked on the MHC and HLA um, with Hugh McDevitt, who described how HLA uh, influenced immune responses in general, antibody responses. And a lady called Rose Payne, who was one of the original pioneers in um, discovering the HLA system. And that kind of was a good training and I had a great time over there. It's a fabulous place. And then I was lucky enough to get this position in Oxford with a bit of clinical work, but also um, developing my interests, which had sort of switched to T cells and the role of the MHC and tried to figure out how T cells um, recognize virus infected cells and whether um, HLA was involved. And we worked on influenza initially. Um, and the big breakthrough really was when Alan Townsend joined us 
following a similar route to me, but 10 years later. And uh, he discovered that uh, the, the, the virus antigens the T cells were seeing were peptides and that they were binding to MAC molecules initially in the mouse and then in the human. <clears throat> and um, that they must be linked together in some way. And the T cell was seeing that combination. And shortly after that, the crystal structure of A2 came out from Pam Bjorkman and Jack Stromager and Don Wiley at Harvard. And um, sure enough, there in the A molecule was a little groove in which the peptide binds. And to me, that's the most magical structure um, ever, that, um, that it explains a whole phenomenon in, in sort of one easy picture. And um, so I then started working on T cells and peptides. Um, that enabled us to culture and grow clones of peptides, because you could then, clones of T cells rather, that would see the peptides. And um, started working on influenza and seeing how what the range of T cells were and showing that different HLA types presented different peptides. Um, and then HIV appeared. It appeared, you know, in 1983, it was discovered. The disease was had been discovered about 1981. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a, another clinical PhD student called Douglas Nixon who came, who told me he wanted to work on HIV. And... Um, I said, he was doing clinical virology. And um, I said, well, if we start working on that and we get a positive result in this experiment, which we designed, uh, I'll be working on it for the rest of my life. Well, that turned out to be prophetic, actually, <laughs> and true. And um, it just, it kind of worked immediately. The, the other um, sort of pioneer at that time was a guy called Bruce Walker at Harvard, who, who you may know. Um, and um, it gradually became clear that uh, we could see strong T cell responses in HIV, even though CD4 T cells, the other kind of T cells, are knocked out. They're killed by the virus. But CD8 T cells are very active, and they, they play a big role in controlling the infection and present, preventing early death. And, and we'd shown in influenza that they're involved in recovery. Um, so... Then we discovered that the virus could escape T cell control by mutating. And so that the peptide either no longer bound the HLA molecule or the T cell receptor. And that for different HLA types, it, some were better than others just because of the peptides they chose. And we got interested in that for a long, long time. Um, and then um, we, when SARS coronavirus came along, a couple of years ago, we, we started working on that and we found that we could see T cells for that as well. Um, but another sort of strand I had was um, a, a sort of peripheral interest in innate immunity. And um, we were only making monoclonal antibodies to T cells. So this is going back again to 1977, 78. And uh, we found the first antibody to a antigen working with Cesar Milstein, which was fun. And um, we found the antibody to what is now called CD1, because it was the first. We're now up to about CD250, I think. So there's been a lot discovered since, um, uh, nearly all of them by other people. Um, and along those lines, I had a, another 
brilliant uh, postdoc visit called Veronique Bro, uh, came from France. And uh, she um, told me she, she was interested to look at HLAE because it was mysterious at that time. So this was late 1990s. And um, she and I uh, had worked, used uh, HLA tetramers. So that's four HLA molecules linked together with scaptavidin, which uh, and refolded with a particular peptide of interest. And that um, enables you to identify T cells normally. But here we, uh, Veronique had identified a peptide that binds to HLAE. And when we tested the tetramers on peripheral blood, we found they bound to NK cells and identified the NK receptor, NKG2A. And that's very important regulation of NK cells. Um, and we thought we'd solved it back in about 2000. Um, and then we, uh, there were all case reports coming up of HLAE behaving like a normal HLA molecule and uh, presenting peptides to T cells. And uh, these were just oddities until a study came up from a guy called Lewis Picker in Oregon, who was making an HIV vaccine, but he, in the monkey model, so it was an SIV vaccine. And he was using a cytomegalovirus to present the viral, the SIV antigen. And he found he could get T cell responses that were very protective and would actually clear early SIV infection. And these turned out to be um, T cells restricted or where HLAE was presenting the peptide, which is very odd. And these are just unique to that particular vaccine, but they give a, a uniquely um, protective T cell response. So that got me interested in HLAE. So I've probably said enough for an introduction. <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful overview and there's a lot to unpack now. Yeah, maybe we can then um, clearly define what HLAE is. And um, so to make it clear, humans have three classical MHC class one, A, B, and C. And then these HLAE belongs to the non-classical ones um, alongside, well, unoriginally HLAE, F, and G. Um, and maybe it would be worth saying why it's atypical in the first place. So what do we mean by HLAE being an atypical MHC class one molecule? Well, it's atypical um, because it's not polymorphic, essentially. So um, I'm not really an evolutionary biologist, but uh, I've picked up enough sort of population genetics and so on to understand that, um, that the HLA system, ABC, is, is extremely polymorphic. It, I think it's still the most polymorphic genetic system known in, in mammals. Uh, or maybe vertebrates. And um, it's thought to be polymorphic because of its function of presenting peptides to T cells. And um, it, when it's polymorphic, it combined more peptides than if it was monomorphic. So if it was monomorphic, there was no variability. Uh, every person or every animal would present the same peptide with the same virus. And it would be quite easy for the virus to escape um, by mutation and changing the peptide sequences um, and then potentially kill the whole population. So there's, a, there's an evolutionary pressure to um, 
for, for, for the HLA system to be diverse. And um, the diversity is astonishing. I mean, there are, um, if you count every variant as, as an allele, um, there must be tens of thousands of variants in the population. Um, although some of them are much commoner than others. So some may only ever be seen in one person. Others are seen in 30 or 40% of the population, like HLA-A2. Um, and HLA-A2 is found in all populations uh, all over the globe, whereas others may be very common in certain populations in Asia, say, um, compared to people in Northern Europe. So there's huge genetic um, population diversity in the HLA system. So HLA-E, which has the same kind of structure, looks the same as a, as a crystal, um, is not polymorphic. It, it um, doesn't vary. And we think this is because of its uh, specificity for predominant specificity for a single peptide. Um, and this peptide actually comes, this is really bizarre, comes from the signal sequence of the variable class one molecules. So it's not expressed in the mature protein, but it's in the signal sequence. It's nine amino acids long, and that is also highly conserved, as, as is the HLAE molecule. So there's a purifying selection or negative selection against diversity in this, because that combination of that peptide binding to HLAE is uh, and must be critically important uh, for regulating um, natural killer cells by binding to, so this is innate immunity, natural killer cells are, are the sort of first line of defense, if you like, killing abnormal cells as they appear. And this is regulating those cells. And there are actually two receptors, NKG2A and C, uh, which both bind to the same peptide naturally. And NKG2A is inhibitory, so it suppresses the activity of natural killer cells. NKG2C is activating, so it enhances the activity. The inhibitory one is, uh, has a high affinity binding for the complex. And so the affinity one is the sort of dominant of the two, but there's a balance and adjusting that balance regulates NK cells. And this is conserved in humans, rhesus monkeys and cynomogus monkeys, so probably all monkeys, and mice. So there's a mouse equivalent called QA1. So you'll be extrapolating a little bit probably all mammals um, um, have the same uh, system and it may go beyond mammals into other vertebrates. So this is really important and there's something really important that's kept that constant and uh, it doesn't vary. So it's different, probably, probably very important. It may even be ancestral to the other for all we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. This remarkable um, MHC polymorphism is like this, population level immune system. And then as opposed, you have this like um, fundamental immunosurveillance mechanism with HLAE. So what, what we've been describing is one of the two main functions of HLAE, which it might be worth um, saying is linked to the missing self. Uh, and so yeah. belonging to a kind of two tiered level of surveillance against pathogen escape or tumor. Uh, so could you maybe just 
um, yeah, rapidly say how e-recognition is linked to and, and reciprocally regulated with MHC class one down, down regulation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, the, the natrokinase cell receptors, they, they have lots of receptors, and, um, but the, the, the main regulatory ones in humans are this NKG2A, that's his HLAE, and the, another set of receptors called KIR, KIR receptors. And KIR receptors see certain HLA ABC molecules. Um, they tend to see them in groups and they're not, they're a little bit dependent on the peptide, but not very much. So there's some KIR receptors, CHLAC, for example, um, and there are some the CHLAA and one or two the CHLAB, and they also have a regulatory role. And then you have the NK receptors, that's CHLAE with this particular peptide. But the, the key thing about that HLAE recognition is it's dependent on the peptide, which is coming from the classical class one molecules. So a lot of viruses, and uh, it turns out some cancer mutations, will downregulate the expression of the HLA ABC, the, the variable HLA molecules. And they do this in order to, um, um, I mean, you know, it's evolved so, so that um, the virus can escape from the T cell response that sees the HLA molecule and the virus peptide. So if, if the virus affects a cell and gets rid of the HLA ABC molecules, then that cell is safe from T cell attack. Uh, but the, the host has this second line of defense, which is if you get rid of the HLA molecules, you get rid of the signal peptide and the HLAE molecule um, is coming to the surface, but there's, oh, it's actually it's not coming to the surface as it would normally come. And that means that the inhibitory half of the suppression of NK activity has gone. So NK cells are more active and enhanced. So the NK cells can attack that HLA-ABC negative cell. It's a, it's a bit complicated. And I, uh, I hope I haven't garbled it too much. No, it's true. I mean, that's, and that's what makes HLAE interesting by itself in that it shows this um, robustness to perturbations that the immune system is trying to build. Um, yes. But in a sense, there's an, what you said, the more interesting part of the HLAE story, which has been discovered more recently, which is the fact that it doesn't just bind this regulatory peptide called VL9, as we said, but you've identified that it also binds to a large panel of um, peptides derived from viruses, from bacteria like salmonella, mycobacteria, and tuberculosis, and even some self-peptides. And what the surprising mm -hmm. finding was that there is a subset of T cells, a minor subset, that, but that can recognize this complex of HLAE and, um, and these, these other panel of peptides. Um, and so you said the main evidence that these cells had any biological relevance was in this SIV immunization study. Yeah, could we maybe expand a bit more about the, this, this study, which was like 2000, around 2011? I should say that there is one other actually big one out there, which is mycobacteria. Mm. Um, um, rather to everyone's surprise, um, that uh, we all... 
stimulates HLA-E-restricted T-cell responses or T-cell responses to mycobacterial peptides presented by HLA-E. And um, all humans um, have uh, mycobacterial infections. So we all know about TB, um, but there are other mycobacteria in the environment. Uh, and almost all of us have uh, T-cells that are specific for, for the mycobacteria back, uh, as a group. Um, if you've had BCG vaccination, you'll have them too, uh, TB antigens as well. And um, these are presented by HLA-E, um, also by class 2 MHC, um, the, the other half of the T-cell response, CD4 T-cells, and also some to H by HLA-ABC. But it, it, it's quite a big part of the response to TB. Um, whether they're important in TB itself, is the answer is probably, but we don't know exactly what their role is relative to some of the other responses. So, so the, the SIV vaccine study was an attempt by Lewis Picker to use um, cytomegalovirus as a virus vector. So um, you know, we know in recent months that uh, one of the SARS coronavirus vaccines has used an ad adenovirus as a vector. So that's a um, a sort of fairly benign um, virus, uh, which has probably been modified so that it's not fully active in humans in terms of causing disease, but uh, can carry in other um, genes that you put into it and you generate an immune response to those other genes. In, uh, for instance, uh, the spike protein of the SARS coronavirus. Um, and make a protective immune response. So um, those uh, adenoviruses give a rather short-term protection as we're now finding out. Um, whereas cytomegalovirus um, is known to stimulate, it's a herpes virus and it's a herpes virus that probably 70% of the world population carries, uh, usually benignly, but not always. Um, and those people infected with that virus make a very strong T-cell response to it. And that, that T-cell response, and I'm talking about CD8 killer T-cells, um, they suppress it and keep it under control. And that's why it doesn't really seem to cause a lot, a lot, uh, as much disease as it might. And so Lewis Baker thought, well, people make a really big response to that. Um, and so do monkeys, actually, because they're very similar. And um, he thought, well, let's use that as a vector to carry in SIV antigens um, and try that out as a vaccine for SIV. And his idea was it would make a big response that would persist because the CMV would persist. Um, but it would persist, hopefully, harmlessly. So he did that and he got this protection. So he, he challenged the monkeys with SIV and they became infected. And half of the animals cleared the virus, then cleared the virus completely, which is unknown for uh, lentivirus or retrovirus. We, in, in all other situations, when they infect the host, 
they persist indefinitely. Um, in this case, they were cleared. But it's only half the animals, the other half don't. And we still, to this day, we don't know why there's that split. Um, the T-cell responses look quite similar. Yeah, I could speculate for the next hour on that. Even though there is that mystery of 50%, um, HIV vaccination is notoriously challenging and 50% is actually on the higher end of the efficacies that have been reached. So it's the top end. So, so yes, you're right. It's the best by quite a long way vaccine at the moment. Um, and we obviously, if we can figure out why the other 50% are unprotected and we could convert them to be protected, it would be amazing. Um, but the, the T-cells that do it have been shown in recent papers this year in Science and Science Immunology by the Picker Group that it's the HLAE, or they call it MAMUI in monkeys, that directed T-cell responses that do the job. So that's why we got interested in um, HLAE. And our first big, uh, study was to see whether we could elicit that kind of response in humans, but we didn't have a CMV vaccine to immunize humans with. Um, so we, first of all, identified a peptide that bound to HLAE. And that's quite tricky because um, it tends to buy peptide, even the signal peptide with quite low affinity. So we had to spend a lot of time optimizing assays um, that could detect uh, these relatively weak binding peptides. And we found one in HIV uh, in the GAG protein. And um, we uh, were able to uh, fold HLAE, determine the structure of that complex, and to use that complex to purify T cells from um, non-immune donors. So we then prime those T cells in vitro and could grow T-cell clones and show that those T-cell clones uh, saw that peptide with HLAE and that those T-cell clones could kill HIV-infected cells. So, so what we could do in essence was um, elicit a, a sort of non-natural T-cell response because T-cell responses have not been clearly described in HIV-infected people um, which is sort of maybe an advantage because it means that the virus hasn't learned how to escape that. Um, and then we, we've got a possibility that we can make a vaccine to stimulate those T-cell responses that might be particularly effective against the HIV. But easily said in a, in a, in a few seconds, but to actually do it will take about 10 years. Yeah, that's what you say, because so you've provided this proof of concept that these T cells can be elicited if you stimulate them in vitro. But now we need to find to optimize the vaccination strategies that would elicit these HLAE cells. And we don't really know what kind of adjuvants or vaccine platforms would be conducive to that. So we do have some clues with the CMV vector from the CAC study. So I suppose we could expect that the same approach with the human CMV could work in, in humans. Yeah, well, Lewis Beck is working on that. And um, he, he and a, a company called VIA in um, California are working on that. 
and they are trying to figure out um, how to um, make CMV do that because um, it turns out this monkey CMV is, is a bit special. It's got some genes deleted and some still present and that particular combination does this. <clears throat> Whereas if you go to human CMV, um, and there was one published study of a, a human CMV tried as a vaccine in a very small experimental medicine study. Um, and it, it did not elicit HLA-restricted T-cell responses. So um, that's human CMV has to be modified. And that's what Lewis Baker is currently working on. Mm -hmm. But if they can do that, and that, that will be one way of doing this. And another way might be, which we're interested in, is to try and figure out what's needed in terms of cell biology to get these T cell, the, these antigen processing going on, and in, in what kind of cell we think it may be macrophages, um, and how we might have a totally synthetic vaccine. Maybe you know, everyone's interested in messenger RNA vaccines, and maybe we could put in not only the HIV gene, but maybe some other genes that would modulate the immune response to or the antigen processing to get us the right immune response. It's true. I mean, I'd say we'll see how this CMV story unfolds, but what's quite elegant about it is that it, it exploits this like evolutionary mismatch in evasion strategies, whereby without getting too technical, CMV does have some proteins yeah. that, that use HLAE immuno evasion, whereas um, HIV does not. And maybe we can, there's, maybe there's more untapped potential in the herpes viruses because they've been evolving with vertebrates for millions of years. They have also their DNA viruses, so they have all this space to encode immune evasion genes. So if we like, rationally look at the, the, the reciprocal gaps, um, there, there's probably a lot to, to expand. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely right. And um, uh, you know, there, there, are, there have been articles written about what, uh, viruses teach us about immunology or what what uh, CMV teaches us about immunology. And you know, it's not just CMV, there's Epstein-Barr virus is another one that we're all infected with that evades uh, immune responses, um, herpes simplex, etc. So it's a rich area. And there are other viruses like vaccinia viruses, which um, or smallpox viruses that modulate immune responses in other ways. So um, figuring out those um, can be very instructive and they can find immunology that, that we didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned maybe wanting to dive down more into the cellular pathways, the trafficking. What are some, um, like in your lab, yeah. some of the um, unanswered questions about HLA immunobiology you want to address? Maybe more at the molecular level rather than systemic protection as, we, as we've been talking about. For, for, um, for HLA. <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, there, there are a um, couple of things, really. One, one is um, um, what is the antigen processing pathway involved in priming these T cell responses? Because um, we know HIV infected cells can be targets, so there's enough peptide and HLAE getting on the surface of an HIV 
infected CD4 T cell, for example. But we know that these T cell responses are not primed in HIV infection, at least to any measurable amount. We think you need a you probably need a lot of peptide HLAE to get priming to occur. Um, and on probably on specialized cells, it may be dendritic cells. Or uh, we think that actually, for various reasons, it might be macrophages. I mean, one reason is because that's what happens in TB. And that seems to be a, a good way of getting HLA-restricted responses. And that also could, of course, be used as a vaccine. So that's something we're interested in. And, and, and the sort of intracellular pathways, you know, where how does the peptide get into the HLA molecule? And how does it compete with the signal peptide, which has higher affinity than all these um, epitope, um, you know, virus peptides and so forth? Um, and we, we, we just have various reasons to think, some of it based on imaging, um, that sort of this processing is occurring in endosomes. And that brings to mind the class two antigen processing pathway where class two um, HLA or MAC um, travels from the ER Golgi two endosomes um, sort of using chaperones to get there and then exchanges peptides in the endosomes before coming to the surface. Um, whereas for HLAE, we think it comes to the surface, like a straight to the surface, like a classical molecule, and then recycles from the surface into endosomes where it may pick up these other peptides. But trying to piece all the bits together there um, is a is a nice challenge. It's an exciting challenge, but it's quite tough and tricky, and requires imaging methods, um, biochemistry, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's a learning experience. Even after fifty years, you're learning new stuff all the time. Yeah, and I guess what's quite powerful in terms of discovery potential is that from your screening of peptides, you've identified a sequence motif that's predictive of good binding. So you've notably shown that hydrophobic amino acids in positions two and nine um, are critical for the affinity to HLAE. And what that gives you is um, a prediction tool. So then you can start looking in protein databases, um, make predictions of what would be good binders, and then obviously do the experimental validation with the biochemical assays. Um, But that's quite... um, well, yeah, it's, it's knowledge that can really guide um, interesting findings in the directions you want to do your research, essentially. Yeah, I mean, we, we can, we've got sort of um, reasonably competent at finding these peptides from the sequence. And it, it's, um, they're, they're very subtleties. And because we've, we've done half a dozen structures of um, crystal structures of some of these peptides bind to HLA. Um, we, we have some insight into, you know, if, if you have an arginine here, what might you need there? That, that kind of, you know, within this nine amino acid peptide, we, we're kind of beginning to learn the rules. And, and maybe um, if we get to sort of artificial intelligence sort of approaches, we might be able to do it a lot better. We, we're rather doing it sort of um, by a bit of intuition and, um, 
sort of back of the envelope rules at the moment. So, so we can get some of these, and uh, you know that because you work with us and and uh, worked on one of these peptides. Um, but also, there, there's another group of peptides that T cells respond to where we can't detect any clear binding, and this is very hard to work on because it's hard to do any biochemistry if you can't get the molecules out. Um, but I'm pretty convinced some of those, maybe not all of them, but some of them are, are real and um, they can stimulate strong T cell responses. And we don't really understand how they work. And it, my guess is that they, they are binding, but um, in a much looser fashion and because HLAE has some stability without peptide, unlike the classical HLA ABC molecules, uh, which fall apart, um, that maybe it's a bit receptive to these low affinity binders in a more open form, and possibly the T cells are seeing those. And we'd like to try and nail that as, as something that is really happening rather than speculation. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out how to solve that. Yeah, I, I think it's actually, actually interesting that you mention um, kind of computational tools to predict peptide binding because something I've been wondering lately is whether you think um, technology-driven research as opposed to hypothesis-driven research is the most powerful. So if maybe you look at the, the thread of all your findings, would it, for example, be the introduction of tetramers um, which is like a technology that you can use flow cytometry that um, yeah. brings the results or is it the other way? And maybe would you give me the same answer today as you would have 20 years ago? Um, so I think, I think you need some of both, quite honestly. I, I think you, you know, tetramers probably would not have um, been in, but you know, if you if you didn't have them right now, could you could you you might I suppose be able to predict the structure, but you still need to be, you have to fold the protein to make the thing, <laughs> otherwise, um, and 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 also you have to, um, yeah, maybe maybe you maybe you could do it all by prediction, but I think not yet. I think maybe maybe you know I I've been doing this for fifty years and the uh, the the change has been astonishing from what the technology we had 50 years ago and now, and it's not slowing down. And so if you look, you know, when, when you've been in it for 50 years, um, I mean, it will be unrecognizable. And it may be that the bench experiment is, is obsolete and that you can do it all on machine learning and artificial intelligence and um, algorithms and goodness knows what on, on, Massive computers, which will probably be the size of an iPhone, you know. <laughs> so, but, I, I heard about making virtual humans in virtual clinical trials. I thought. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, one of the things that that has been is being touted already is um, uh, crystal structures determined by artificial intelligence, and um, that there are, there's a company, at least one company, that's that's doing this and. I'd, I'd love to know how accurate it is, um, because if you can get to the point where um, you can um, 
look at a sequence and then look at its structure, that would be a massive advance. But but in some cases, I mean, and we see it with the HLA peptide interactions, um, it's not entirely predictable exactly where each side chain points. I mean, you get the overall structure, you could get low resolution. Um, what do you can model low resolution, you know, 10 or 20 angstrom from, from any HLA peptide sequence combination. Uh, but to actually see where each side chain is going and then what the T cell receptor might have to bind to, I, I think at the moment you still have to do it by experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely the space to improve the resolution of um, our structural data. But is there, you personally, um, one research direction you see as particularly teeming in potential that you're really eager to see the development of? Um, well, I, I think, I mean, because I started life as a clinician, that, that, that I think um, actually developing all these things into therapies and vaccines is something that is now, now a reality. Um, yeah, even 50 years ago, when we applied for grants, we would say, uh, understanding this will help us make vaccines or treatments. And for about 40 years, um, it, you, we just said it, it was, it was meaningless. Um, uh, but in the last 10 years, it's become a reality that, that actually um, you can turn some of these things into um, therapeutics. And this is very exciting. And this is going to, I mean, it's exploding right now as, as technology and advances in the potential for treatment and so forth. And, you know, the one you're working on um, in, in the sort of cancer field is an example where that could um, um, really develop into a possible therapy. And it'd probably be one of many because one, you know, the, the cancer will always mutate and escape. But if you get two or three, then you might be able to get something that would work. Mm -hmm. And I, I ask this question not because it's my case right now, but... Were you to start a PhD this year, what do you think, what field do you think you'd choose um, if you were to start over again? Is there what topic um, you want to explore? Well, I think, I think in immunology, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you get to my age, you either think, um, or you think, you know, virtually nothing. <laughs> and I'm afraid I'm in the latter, you know, I think there's a hell of a lot still more to find. And so I think it's, it's a good field to go into. And actually the, the area I, I, go for is uh, well we I mean two things I mean, one would be cancer because um, there are so many different cancers and the payoff is going to be massive and the second as we've seen from SARS coronavirus is infections and and not just viruses which you know I mean although SARS coronavirus is a terrible disease that the solutions are actually fairly relatively easy I mean they an easy solution can take a few years. And, you know, it took a year to get a vaccine. And the vaccine um, is pretty effective, actually. Um, and, and there are now antiviral drugs coming up, and they're looking very promising. And, you know, within, within five years from the beginning, there'll probably be pretty good therapeutic and vaccine control. Um, but then, but I think the area where there might be real more mileage is bacterial infections and um, 
well, non-viral infections, parasite infections as well, um, where I think there's different kind of immunity involved. You know, I think we've been we've been a bit over focused on viruses because in some ways they're easy, but you look at you know look at HLA for example, it's TB, Salmonella, um, macrophages. You know, maybe it's um, there's a whole different kind of immunity out there for, for, for other kinds of uh, other types of parasite. So I think that would be good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. I want to thank you so much. And also, I think I want to uh, ask you by asking whether you have any advice for younger scientists, um, people still in school at the start of their science careers. I think actually it, it's a fabulous career. If you can, if you can, um, jump in and swim you know if you I mean some people it, it sort of find it very difficult and um, and there's a bit of luck um, involved I think um, always but you know try it because there are other possibilities you can go out and it's a good training anyway for, for lots of different things I, I know people who who didn't succeed in science but then they set up a business sort of uh, doing totally different things and did really well because it was such a good background thing, a uh, good thinking thing and, and getting new ideas. Um, I, but I think it's exciting. If, if you can get into it, it's exciting doing kind of interesting things and new things and um, using your hands a bit and, and, and um, uh, thinking up crazy ideas and sometimes they work. Yeah, it's, it's really good. <laughs> but you know I've been a bit lucky maybe and um, and another good thing is you know go to good labs and, and uh, try and pick the best and most interesting lab to work in um, and give it a go I mean there are other things you can do if it doesn't work out so um, you know if it, if it starts to work out well then it's a fabulous thing to do mm -hmm. okay Thank you. Thank you so much for your time on Sarah. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um.